Hello, and welcome to the Minimalist Moms podcast. I'm Diane. I'm a mother of three living in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to make room in my life for what matters by getting rid of the clutter and living life with purpose. I hope you'll join me on the journey to think more and do with less. In today's episode, I sat down with Dr. Emily Klein to discuss how motivational interviewing, also known as MI, can be used to facilitate healthy communication between parents and young adults. Often used in healthcare settings, MI is a communication style that focuses on making positive changes, such as reducing drug or alcohol use, taking medications regularly, and other lifestyle improvements. However, Dr. Klein has adapted these techniques to help parents communicate with their young adult children more effectively. So in this insightful conversation, Dr. Klein explains how parents can build stronger relationships with their children by using the principles of MI, by approaching difficult conversations with curiosity, asking good questions, listening carefully, repeating back what you heard, and giving advice effectively. Parents can create a partnership with their children that fosters mutual respect and understanding. So join us as we explore these important techniques for making hard talks easier. But before we get there, I wanted to share my minimalist moment of the week with you. This is a quick one and maybe kind of silly, but stay with me here. The other day, I was unloading the dishwasher of the glassware Pyrex containers, the ones that we put leftovers in. So I'm unloading these and then I'm looking up at the cabinet that I have where my husband and I have started to store jam jars, pasta sauce jars, salsa jars, ghee jars, all the jars that we have been collecting over the past couple of months. And again, this may not be a very valid point, but I thought to myself, okay, I have this glassware here in my cabinet that I have been collecting that was the price was included within the price of whatever the item was that I had consumed. And yet I'm here unloading these Pyrex glass jars. Again, similar material does the same job. And these were however expensive. Yet the reason we're saving these other jars is for leftovers. Again, what is my point? I'm not exactly sure, but it occurred to me that I'm spending money on things that I probably could source in a variety of ways. Sure, it may not look as nice as the Pyrex if I'm taking leftovers to my nature group or my homeschool co-op. However, it's a thriftier way to save money, to use what you already have, to be sustainable, and it was a thought that I had while unloading the dishwasher that I wanted to share with all of you. And with that, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Emily Klein. When I was looking you up on Instagram, I was typing in Dr. Emily Klein and I couldn't find you. And then I realized your Instagram name was learn about Milo. So Milo, I want you to just to start off talking about what Milo is for people that might not know, like myself. Sure. Yes. The very indirect answer to your question is that I run the account with my students at BU. Okay. because it's collaborative, I always feel really ambivalent about putting it under my name, but I realized this is a recurring problem and I did add my name. But um, Milo stands for Motivational Interviewing for Loved Ones. And motivational interviewing is a therapeutic practice that I learned you know, as a psychologist to work with clients. And it's a way to talk to people about making changes in their life without making people get defensive because we all get usually defensive when people suggest that we change something about ourselves. Sure. Um, 
And as I worked with families, I realized so much of the time family caregivers and especially parents of teens and young adults are trying to get behavior change out of their kids and they don't have a lot of control. And I realized that the same strategies that I use to talk with my clients in therapy about change, um, if I adapted them the skills that Mm -hmm. parents of teens and young adults could actually use very similar skills. So I call it motivational interviewing for loved ones. And it's a set of communication skills that I teach to parents of teens and young adults. Yes, absolutely. Which is so helpful as our kids get older and they are in those ages where we're talking about more, I guess, just emotionally driven topics that can be hard to take constructive criticism or just embarrassing. So I really like the principles that you have written about in your book, but let's rewind a little bit. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then maybe tell me how this book came about? Sure. So I'm a psychologist and a professor of psychiatry at Boston University. I work in a clinic with young adults and teenagers and families doing individual therapy and family therapy and teaching therapy to the students who um, train at Boston University. And the book really came out of the research that I've been doing over the past several years, where I developed this curriculum for parents of teenagers and young adults whose kids were having mental health problems. And I thought, you know, these parents would really benefit from learning some of my best techniques for influencing and inspiring change in young people. So I developed this curriculum. Um, It's a pretty brief curriculum. I was doing it over five sessions with most of the families. And then I started getting a lot of interest from people who were not necessary, whose kids weren't necessarily experiencing serious mental health problems. They just wanted to learn it. And at the same time, the families that I was working with, whose kids were sometimes, you know, having pretty serious problems like um, substance use problems and uh, mood disorders, psychotic disorders, those families were saying to me, like, this is useful for all my kids, not just the one who's struggling. And I started to realize, you know, this would be beneficial for everybody. That's what the book is about. It's about using this set of techniques to talk about change, um, about, like you're saying, these highly emotional topics, and especially areas where as parents, we don't control everything with teenagers and young adults as they're becoming more independent for, you know, any anyone who's who's kind of grappling with how do I talk to my teenager about, you know, friendship issues, school issues, drugs and alcohol, because I can't control these things. Yeah, absolutely. I like how you have this little, I don't know, it's a graph of sorts. Correct me if, if you have the actual term for it, but you have this graph of four different areas and it's over involved to independent. So that's one horizontal line and then from critical to accepting. And so we have the different spaces that we may find ourselves in as we're trying to communicate with our kids. Some of them seem more authoritarian, maybe some are more permissive, obviously with the accepting versus critical, we're there to be supportive. So I I just love it. I'll try and um, figure out a way to link this in the show notes for listeners so they can actually see it. But Tell me how this method of, of communication is different from other therapeutic ways of, of talking with kids, because I, you hear about something like cognitive behavioral therapy, and that seems to differ quite a lot from your what you've created because it seems more personal. It seems more personal what yeah. you're doing. 
So um, cognitive behavioral therapy is a really useful therapeutic practice, and it usually involves kind of a, a teaching stance. Like you go to your therapist and they kind of explain to you like, okay, mm-hmm. here's what you need to be doing to get out of this funk or to sleep better or to reduce your substance use. Sometimes there's like worksheets or homework, um, and it can feel a little bit like school. I think it's a really good approach, but in my own practice, I found that there's not that many clients, especially teenagers yeah. who come in ready to dive in and who are like, yes, give me homework. Tell me what to do. <laughs> right. Most people come into therapy and some teenagers don't want to be there at all. And some are willing to be there and they want to be there, but they want to kind of drive the bus themselves, right? They come in with their own agenda, wanting to talk about some things. So I think about, you know, there's therapy that is just like totally puts the client in the driver's seat. Like we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And then there's cognitive behavioral therapy where the therapist is driving the bus and saying, we're going to get through this kind of agenda that I have. I'm going to teach you some things and then you're going to do homework and come back and then we'll go on to the next topic. And I see motivational interviewing as kind of like in between because sometimes people don't respond so well to that really didactic sort of instructional approach. And at the same time, as a therapist, if I let my client come in week after week and talk about everything under the sun, except for the fact that they're drinking way too much every day, then I'm not doing my job either. So motivational interviewing kind of sits in the middle as a way where I'm being very, very collaborative, but I'm trying to elicit motivation to talk about and address these really difficult behaviors and topics from my client. And then when I sense that they're ready, that's when I might give them advice or give them homework, but not until then. Where do you see that parents are getting it wrong right now? And why would they want to implement some of your strategies? So I think, you know, I work with parents who are kind of coming from both ends. Like some parents are really anxious and they think they want to be like in control of everything, you know, like your typical stereotypical helicopter mom. And there's a lot of pressure to control our kids. I mean, I've literally heard people say, control your kid. Oh, yeah. Right. And that doesn't feel good. But I think there's a lot of pressure, you know, socially or from extended family members or wherever it's Mm -hmm. coming from to kind Mm -hmm. of um, have your kid turn out a certain way, have them apply to certain colleges, have them abstain from drugs and alcohol. So I definitely work with parents who, you know, have a sort of illusion of control and it might lead to a lot of conflict, like fighting with their child or putting a bunch of um, consequences or punishments in place that aren't necessarily doing much to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And then I work with other parents who are more passive and they might be like pretty burned out around a certain problem that's going on in their family, or they might be too nervous to even bring up a behavior that's bothering them. And so those parents should be like a little more assertive. So people kind of come from both directions. I mean, that sounds like me right now with my three-year-old. He's three and a half. And I know that this doesn't necessarily apply to younger kids. 
because he can't dialogue with me. He has no rationality for why he does the way he does. He's impulsive and he's three. But I hear I hear often, can you just control him, whether it's from family members, my husband, whomever. I can imagine with teenagers, when we can have that dialogue, it's even more pressure because it's like, oh, wait, we should be able to communicate this with our teenager. And if they're not understanding us, then we are failing even more so. Like, I can't imagine the pressure that I will feel Hopefully, but I don't feel one day when I have older kids, but I can imagine that it does feel really hard sometimes to navigate. But also we all have our own choices to make. I think I have to come back to that as a parent. Yes, nature, I guess it's nature versus nurture. I can do the best that I can and have these conversations and my kids still might not be in my control. They're not in my control. I can't control them. Well, there's, you know, I listening to your podcast, I mean, you talk a lot about spirituality. Yeah. And there is a spiritual dimension to this, you know, yeah. when we recognize that our kids are whole mm-hmm. and they're not us and mm-hmm. they are just as whole and as they have souls and they're made by God just as much as we are. Mm-hmm. And if we think back to your own childhood and think about your siblings, your parents didn't program a perfect version of a child and then clone that child, you know, two or three or four times, right? You all turned out different because you all are different. And as parents, I think, you know, it can be so sort of liberating, but also scary to remember that, that like, I'm not creating the personality of my child. I'm not in control of that. That can be really freeing. It can be sort of a weight lifted off your shoulders. Yeah. Um, but it can also be scary if your kids are doing things that you don't like and, you know, you kind of, it, it can be easier to like, not easier, but parents might kind of want to control those things and facing the lack of control can be a scary thing. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel freedom in that, that I think that there is freedom in knowing that we're just here as mentors. And if we're having these conversations and being intentional, and that's why I wanted to have you here, because this is, this really does align with what I talk about in regards to intentional living. And honestly, like in certain ways, this is simplifying life because what is more simple than a conversation? It's hard, but it is simple. What is it? It's simple. It's not easy. So I I think that that goes along with your book and what you teach in the School of Hard Talks, which the subtitle is how to have real conversations with your almost grown kids. But yeah, we can keep the dialogue going. And I was just telling someone earlier today, I have this confidence now with my almost nine-year-old because I feel confident in teaching her the foundations that I want to instill in her because I feel certain of them. And even if one day we agree to disagree, at least we're in communication. So I think with your book, applying this to younger people or younger children, just keeping communication open is so important. So when it comes to control, you know, the Mm -hmm. relationship is the thing that we have most control over when it comes to other people. Yeah. Right. I can't make my child, you know, in your the the example you're just talking about, you can't instill your faith in them. But you can have a wonderful relationship where you can toss around these beautiful ideas and talk them through together in a very earnest way um, that feels really natural. Let's talk through some examples of like yeah. a behavior where say you have like a 13-year-old and they're using social media all the time and you feel like it's not good for them and you wish they would look at it less. Mm-hmm. Right? You have some options. You can say, 
I'm deleting that app from your phone or I'm taking that phone away from you. Or if if I catch you using it, you're going to be in trouble, right? That's one way to go about it. It could work. Um, and more power to you if it does work. <laughs> the parents who come to see me usually already tried that. Yeah. And it didn't work. And either what happened is that their their kid got so angry that now they're worried about like that anger and that lack of communication or kids are smart and they figure out a way to sneak. So what's another way? How do we go about getting this kid's buy-in maybe for this goal? And sometimes when we calm down and we're very controlling, it actually makes people, especially teenagers, kind of want to do the opposite of what we say, you know, kind of prove us wrong or prove that we can't tell them what to do. Um, I always think about that scene at the beginning of the movie, Finding Nemo, where, you know, it's like his first day of school and the kids are daring each other to swim out into the ocean. And Nemo is like, I don't really want to. That makes me nervous. Mm -hmm. But then the dad swoops in and he's like, how dare you? Don't do it. That's risky. And now Nemo needs to prove him wrong. Right. So we never want to be like Nemo's dad. Mm -hmm. We're kind of like daring our kids almost to prove us wrong. So back to the social media example, if we approach this kid now and say, show me what you're looking at, right? Expressing that curiosity, what do you like about it? And kind of lowering their defensiveness and just just approaching the topic with curiosity. Then we might have room to say, is there anything you don't like about it? And they might be honest with us. We know our kids. We're probably having this conversation with them because we know it's not all good. So they might say, oh yeah, well... Sometimes I get in a bad mood because I can see, you know, that there was a party I wasn't invited to. Mm -hmm. There was a sleepover happening and I wasn't there. And it really upsets me when I see that. So, you know, what's the right move there? Do we say, then just get off? You know, that might be a step backward. You might want to go slower and Mm -hmm. say, oh, wow. So it sounds like when you look at it, sometimes it's interesting and fun. And at other times, it makes you feel really bad. And explore that with them and ask them, like, So, you know, help me understand the pros and cons and what do you think about spending less time or, you know, only looking at certain apps or what do you see as some solutions to this problem that you're having? You do some problem solving um, and just use me as a sounding board and just really helping them think it through that way in a way that helps them feel like you're not judging them. You are interested in their perspective. You believe in their problem solving abilities. And then if they still don't come up with a good solution or you don't agree with the solution they did come up with, that's when we might say, okay, well, I have some thoughts too. You know, I think you should not be looking at Instagram or uh, let's take it off your phone and just have it on the family computer. What do you think about that? And usually I found that if we do a good job of expressing that curiosity and our vote of confidence in kids that they can do some problem solving for themselves. And we help them to feel like they're ultimately in control of solving their problems. They're pretty receptive to advice. There are going to be outliers where I'm just thinking about people that are like, I've done that. I've asked the questions. I feel like that sometimes with my three-year-old. It's like, I've yelled. I've been calm. I've <laughs> I've been enticing. I have done all the things. And maybe I just haven't stuck to something long enough. So would you just be more persistent and continuing to have these conversations? Because I'm thinking about some teenagers that 
maybe when you ask them for their help, they're like, I don't know. I don't care. Leave me alone. And they shut down. So that's when you step in, I guess, and say, well, I have some ideas and wonder if they're still not receptive to that. Do you just continue to come back persistently? Is that when you are authoritarian? I would think that if you are continuing to behave in this manner, that this is going to work a lot of like 60% of the time at least, but there are those outliers. And so I think that's what overwhelms me, which again, I'm probably thinking overthinking all of this. I'm not even to this stage of life yet. So for the people listening that do have a kid that's like this. Yeah. So there's a lot of kids who, right, they, they might just roll their eyes or shut you down. And that's fine. I mean, this is incremental, right? It's an approach to try. The results are definitely not guaranteed every time. And when you think about kind of trying to give up control in those moments, you're even saying, I know this conversation might not go exactly the way I want it to, right? And so this isn't a formula for mind control and success because that just doesn't exist in life. It's a way to approach people that raises the chances that they're going to be receptive and have a nice conversation or be able to hear your advice. There's no guarantees. The nice thing about what I do as a therapist in a clinic and also as parents, what we have is that we have time on our side, Sure, right? We don't, we're not having these conversations one time. It's yeah. not like we get one shot at it and either it goes well or doesn't go well. You can always come back to it. And in fact, I would say that if you say like, hey, I have some thoughts about you know, Instagram or some things I've noticed about how it affects you. Um, can I share that with you? And they go, no, I don't want to hear that. I would say that's fine. Let's talk about it another day because you don't necessarily want to kind of waste your great advice on a moment when somebody's not receptive to it. And you can always come back to it tomorrow um, or the next day and say, hey, can we talk about that again? Okay. Yeah, I know. That's great advice. So you gave us an example with social media and throughout your book, you've woven in these hyper-realistic characters based on some of your patients and research subjects. So how did you go about writing these characters? And then how would you say, I guess kind of just like what we just did, you have outlined these examples so that we can get some of this real life experience to be applicable to our own situations. Yeah. So the characters, some of them are based on real people who I was picturing in my mind as I was writing them. And some of them are a little bit more creative creations that I came up with that are just meant to represent a very diverse group of families and problems. But all of the characters in the book are sort of a pair of either, you know, a teenager, young adult, so someone between the ages of like 14 and 24, and a parent or grandparent who's trying to help them. And the problems that they're having really are all over the place. So some of them are struggling with mental health, social media, friendship problems, school problems, Um, And some of the problems are serious and some of them are really not that serious. You know, there's a whole conversation of a girl who's trying to decide whether or not she wants to keep taking an art class in college that she likes, but it's early in the morning and she's not sure um, she can stick with it. So, you know, and the reason that I kind of picked a, a bunch of different situations is to give people a sense of what the skills look like mm-hmm. in lots of different situations. And also um, that there's so many opportunities as parents that we have to try something different and to slow down and mm-hmm. to try and approach 
problem solving with curiosity and um and, and with honoring our child's autonomy in mind um and trying to really get them to take a little more responsibility and, and solve their own problems, whether those problems are big or small. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think it's helpful to start applying some of these practices when the stakes aren't as high. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And like some of the skills, you know, the most basic skill is just um, learning how to do what I call reflections. Yeah. Um, which is say your kid comes to you and says, I hate school. And, you know, as the, as the mom, you might have that impulse to be like, no, you don't. Yesterday you had so much fun. You know, you were mm-hmm. sitting with so-and-so at lunch and you got an A on your test and you have your basketball game coming up. Or you might have the impulse to try and like fix their problem. Like, okay, mm-hmm. well, let's, you know, we've been talking about this forever. Let's look into that private school. Let's look into a transfer. Let's fix the problem. And I'm not saying that either of those things are bad. You know, it may be that this kid does need to switch schools or it may be that they do just kind of need a pep talk. But instead of going to either of those kind of impulses, the most basic skill in the book is to learn to slow down and reflect and just to say, you hate school. Yeah. You're having a hard time. Tell me what's going on. Um, And the parents that I work with would often say, you know, I tried it in a really low stakes situation, like, you know, just a nothing thing, you know, rather than in a big emotional moment. So, you know, if somebody says, even if somebody says something positive, oh, I want to make spaghetti and meatballs for dinner, you could reflect and say, oh, that's been your favorite meal lately. Right. And just practice when, you know, like you said, the stakes are literally so low. It doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing you said was to slow down. And I think that that is so hard. And again, coming back to what I talk about often, slowing down and why are we speeding things up, especially when our kids are in our house for such a short period of time? It just goes by so quickly. And so allowing ourselves to go slow with our kids, like this is one of the most important things that we can do. And it's not forever, but also we should apply this principle to probably a lot of the relationships in our life, going slower, asking questions versus assumption. And again, wanting to take back that control. So I think this could probably be applicable to all the relationships in our life, to be honest. Well, it's so easy in some relationships, right? Like think about kind of going out with your work friend and gossiping about what's going on at the office. Like that's fun. And there's a real pleasure in if your if your friend says, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what, you know, our boss said to me this morning. You don't rush to, here's what you should do. You go, oh, tell me everything. Right. And it comes so organically in friendship because slowing down and getting all the details and kind of reveling in that conversation is fun. Um, But we forget to do that with our kids because we feel responsible for solving their problems. But it can be nice to not feel responsible, even if ultimately we are going to help them, but just slow down and and explore it a little bit with them before we jump into, into solution mode and into let me take responsibility for this mode. Absolutely. So I did want to touch on your five-step plan that you outline in your book, but I don't know if we have enough time. So I'm happy to just have you, if you want to encourage people here at the end, and then we can kind of wrap things up. You know, I've mentioned curiosity. I've mentioned doing reflections. 
I've mentioned giving advice. You know, those are kind of the building blocks of what I call a successful hard talk. Um, But if people really want to see like how it all comes together and get lots of different examples of how somebody might approach a conversation about this topic, a conversation about that topic, um, and put all those things together into a successful hard talk, they can check out the book. It's called The School of Hard Talks, How to Have Real Conversations with Your Almost Grown Kids. And each chapter kind of introduces a new skill until you've got them all. And then there's like a five-step kind of cheat sheet for um, navigating your way through these difficult conversations. Cool. Well, where can listeners find you, grab a copy of your book or connect with you online? Well, people can buy the book um, wherever they get their books. They like to shop at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or a local bookstore. Just go check it out. Um, If you want to find me online, I'm at learnaboutmilo, M-I-L-O, learnaboutmilo on Instagram and TikTok. And yeah, you can also find my personal website, which is Dr. Emily Klein, D-R-E-M-I-L-Y-K-L-I-N-E.com. Well, as we wrap up this conversation, I always ask two questions to every guest, and these are just quick fire questions. So the first one is, what has been a beneficial resource to you in your life that you'd like to suggest to the listeners? Good question. Um, let's see. Diane, I'm like, no blanking. pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Oh, here's a great um, piece of advice I recently read. It was in my colleague, uh, Bob Waldinger's book, actually. He, um, in Mark Schultz, wrote a book called The Good Life which is a really lovely self-help book that's also based on research out of Harvard. And a piece of advice in that was to not wait on giving people recognition, like thinking about the kinds of things we say about people when they're gone. If something comes to mind, just communicate it. Like If there's a mentor or a role model um, that you would say something nice about if they died, like just text them that thing right now. Why wait? Yeah, no, that's great advice. All right. Well, the last question is, what is something that you can't stop talking about? And this can be something frivolous or silly or serious, whatever you can't stop talking about. The show Yellow Jackets is like way Um, under my skin. It is so creepy. Okay. And I don't know if I like it or I hate it, but it is very imaginative and very creepy and very, very interesting. So that's been on my mind lately. Okay. So it looks like a psychological thriller mm-hmm. okay. with Christina Ritchie and Melanie oh. Linsky. And it's basically about, it, it kind of goes back and forth between present day and the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. And it is about in the nineties, this high school girls soccer team whose plane crashes in the woods. Okay. So like, if you ever read the book, like hatchet as a kid, which I was obsessed with, yeah. it's kind of like that. Like they have to survive in the wilderness. Okay. But then it also zooms fast forward to when they're like our age and they're raising their own kids um, and they're like 40-ish and sort of how it's all affected them as they've grown up. Well, Emily, this was really helpful. I can't wait to read through your book. I, Like I said, I don't have older kids, but I still think this can get the ball rolling with the conversations I'm having, even with my eight, nine-year-old. So I really appreciate you writing it and thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. Thanks. What did you think of the episode? I hope you enjoyed the conversation. 
To learn more about today's guest, including links, resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at minimalistmomspodcast.com, where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as my book, Minimalist Moms Living and Parenting with Simplicity, or other ways to connect or work with me online. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a rating or review of your favorite episode. Lastly, sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends on social media is very helpful and will encourage others on their journey to think more and do with less.